moment to note that youth group will be cancelled on Friday on account of the church camp. So don't come to junior youth group if you're into that or the older youth group because the camp will be on. So this is the official announcement. No youth group on Friday. Thanks, Joe. We're on page 714 of the Red Pew Bibles. Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Amen. Uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness in revealing yourself to us and your son Jesus through the scriptures. Father, we pray now that your spirit would be enlivening our minds and our hearts uh, granting us knowledge and faith and obedience. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Today I want to <clears throat> speak about what it means to follow Jesus. And uh, our Bible passage, if you'd like to have it open, is Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through to chapter 9, verse 1. And uh, I want to start by asking the question, uh, what does a person mean when they say, I follow Christ? Because uh, what a person means when they say that they follow Christ is going to depend somewhat on who they actually think Christ is. What, what does it mean for Jesus to be Christ? Uh, and so for some people, uh, they see Jesus as being a, a great moral philosopher Listen to what one of our politicians said about the teaching of Jesus, where he said that uh, the teaching of Jesus, and I quote, 
provides an illuminating principle that can help shape our view of what constitutes appropriate policy for our community, the nation and the world. Sounds like a politician, doesn't it? But what's his view of who Jesus actually is? Uh, what kind of leader does he think Jesus is? It sounds a bit like, if, if that was the only thing we knew of what that person believed, that he thinks of Jesus as being a great moral philosopher uh, and that some of his philosophies can just help shape our, uh, the way we live and the decisions that we make. Um, <clears throat> I wonder what it means for you to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, some people might say, well, for me, following Jesus means that I try to do the right thing, that I try to live a good life. Now, I would hope that in a group such as this, that we would have a more gospel-centred view of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and uh, that we would be saying something like, well, for me to follow Jesus means that I trust that his death has paid for my sin, and in gratitude for that, that I want to live my life in a way that pleases him. But even so, we've got to ask the question, well, what does that actually mean? Uh, to what extent do we live our life in a way that pleases Jesus? Now, this is the kind of question that Jesus uh, asked his disciples in uh, the passage that we're looking at today. And uh, in, so if you, um, if you have a look at verse 27 where it starts off, let me just give you something by way of context. Jesus and his disciples were now in the region around the city of Caesarea Philippi. And that was actually a very appropriate place for Jesus to ask the disciples the question of who do people say that I am? Uh, the reason why I say it's an appropriate place uh, has got to do with the nature of Caesarea Philippi. Has anyone ever been to Caesarea Philippi? You see, it's, it's actually, you can go there today. It's a thriving city. Cassie and I have friends who come from Caesarea Philippi. They actually live out at Warhope. Um, There's a very big contrast between those two places. Uh, it was built uh, by the ruler whose name was Herod Philip. Uh, he was the son of Herod the Great, the Herod who ruled at the time of Jesus. And uh, he'd, in, he'd been given this uh, area of land. He built this city. And he named it Caesarea Philippi for a reason. Uh, he named it Caesarea in honour of his boss, the, uh, the Caesar of Rome, the emperor. And he named it uh, Philippi in honour of, guess who? himself. Uh, so it's Caesarea Philippi. Uh, his father, Herod the Great, in that region before the city was built, uh, he had actually built a, a, a temple there which was, uh, which was actually dedicated to the Caesar of his time, Caesar Augustus. And so this city, in that sense, was actually a tribute to the great kingdom and the great kings of their day, the Roman Empire. And so I think it's significant that this is the place where Jesus chose to ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
And it's a, a question that elicits a uh, really helpful conversation. In verse 28, the disciples answer, and they say, well, um, some say that you're John the Baptist. Um, others say that you're Elijah. And still others say that you're uh, a prophet. Now, you've got to ask the question, why would people think that way? I mean, Jesus, a prophet, yeah, you can sort of understand that, although he's done a lot more than what prophets ever did. But what about Elijah? What about John the Baptist? Why would they think that he was Elijah? Why would they think that he's John the Baptist? I mean, uh, Elijah's not around and he was swooped up to heaven and John the Baptist is dead. The key to that, I think, has got to do with the Jewish expectation from the Old Testament that one day that God would appoint his own king who would sit on the throne of David, who would be the ruler of a kingdom which would um, uh, extend beyond Jerusalem into all of the world. Uh, the great promised kingdom, the great promised king. He would be a king who would be greater than Caesar and Philip combined. His empire would be greater than the Roman Empire. So why would people think that Jesus was Elijah? Well, in the book of Malachi, which we're going to know very well by the end of uh, this time next week, if you're coming to getaway, uh, in the book of Malachi, God had promised that before this great king came that there would be an Elijah. Uh, well, he said that Elijah would come, and it's understood as an Elijah figure would come to prepare the way. But John the Baptist has actually already done that. Um, other people thought uh, that Jesus was actually John the Baptist, um, come back to life. Herod himself thought that. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 6, we're told that Herod, when he was learning about Jesus, uh, was, uh, well, I'm, I'm assuming he was scared stiff because he thought that this Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life. Why would that frighten him? Well, because he's just gone and lopped John the Baptist's head off and now this bloke whose head he's just lopped off, he thinks has come back to life. I'd be scared about that, wouldn't you? And a good reason to be frightened of that possibility. But uh, So that's what he thought. So who do people say Jesus is? Well, Elijah, the Baptist, a prophet. You see what they're saying? They're saying Jesus is special. Yep, I mean the miracles, his teaching, all that sort of... He's, he's special... Uh, he might even be the one who comes to prepare the way, but that's all. He's not actually the expected king. And so Jesus says to his disciples, look, never mind the rest. You've seen all the miracles. You've seen the healings. You've seen me driving out demons. You've seen my life. And I guess he'd eyeball them and say, who do you say that I am? Now, you've got to love Peter, don't you? I mean, he doesn't always, you know, sometimes he just, you know, opens his mouth to change feet, you know. He's, uh, he often says the wrong thing, gets it wrong, but this time he gets it right. In verse 29, Peter answers and says, you are the Christ. Now, that's a loaded answer. 
to be the Christ, the word Christ means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, to be anointed uh, means that you're actually the king. That was how the kings were anointed. And so what Peter is saying is that I believe that you are the promised king, the one who would be the king of that great kingdom. He got it right. But you know what? Uh, remember last week we saw the, um, the guy who was blind but he was only half healed? I said the disciples are a bit like that. You know, they, uh, they, Peter's a bit like that here. He, he kind of half sees the picture, but he it's all still very blurry to him as to what it means that Jesus is the King, the Christ. Because having got it so right, what does he do in verse 31 to 33? He again gets it so wrong. Let me explain that. The Jews were expecting that God's king would lead a revolt which would uh, defeat and overthrow Caesar's army and would set up God's kingdom. And that's what the disciples expected. In fact, in chapter 10, two of the disciples took Jesus aside and, you know, and the others weren't, weren't watching. And they said, listen, you know, when you come into your kingdom... Could you make us your two top government officials? <laughs> and see, what kind of kingdom are they expecting? They're expecting an earthly kingdom. The other disciples were indignant about that because these two got in before them. You know, it wasn't fair. And so that's their expectation of an earthly kingdom like that of Solomon's. And therefore, what Jesus says next absolutely rattles, rattles them. Have a look at verse 30. Verse 30, uh, Peter, having declared that Jesus is the Christ, says, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. This is actually a turning point in the, in the gospel. This is a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, you know, till then things had been in parables and so on. Now it says, no, he's actually speaking very plainly to them about this. And uh, from here on, he really sets his face towards Jerusalem. But I wonder, have you noticed throughout Mark's gospel that Jesus kind of doesn't seem for to want people to know who he is. Have you noticed that? It's come up a few times, hasn't it? Uh, for example, in chapter 1, verse 21, there was a man, uh, Jesus was in a synagogue, there was a man who was also in the synagogue and he was possessed by an evil spirit and when Jesus faced off against the evil spirit, uh, the evil spirit says, why have you come to us, Jesus of Nazareth? Are you trying to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Remember that? And what did Jesus do? Jesus sternly told him to keep quiet, to not to say that. And we've seen this over and over again, haven't we, when people have been healed of sickness, blindness and so on, that Jesus has told them to not tell anyone about what's happened to them. And, of course, they sometimes haven't been able to keep, keep it in. And it's the same here. 
Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, but uh, Jesus doesn't want the disciples to tell people about him. doesn't want that to be known. Why? I think that the, this passage gives us more insight into answering that question than other times when Jesus has asked people to keep quiet. Because of what immediately follows, because in verse 31, Jesus then says that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. Now, notice this, that uh, although he's just been referred to as the Christ, that here Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. I think that's quite deliberate because uh, in the Old Testament, the, uh, the, the great king uh, is described as one like a son of man. I, I wonder if I can just get you to go back to this key passage, which is in Daniel chapter 7 for a moment, which you'll find on page 631 of your pew Bibles. Um, because here, Daniel, and we studied Daniel, it was a couple of years ago now, we went all the way through Daniel. Uh, here, Daniel is experiencing a vision where Daniel is, 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 is in heaven. The vision is from the perspective, the perspective of heaven. And in verse 13, he says, In my vision at night I looked... And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. So coming up to heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. Guess who you think that is? That would be God the Father. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So here he is, this one like a son of man who is made the ruler of the world and who receives his kingship by coming to the Ancient of Days, by coming to uh, God the Father. On the, on the clouds of heaven. Now, when you go back to Mark 8, Jesus uh, calls himself the Son of Man. And in Mark 8, before he rises and ascends to be with the Ancient of Days, certain things must happen. He must suffer. He must be rejected by the religious elite. And he must die. He must. He must. Now, there's been enough um, information throughout the ministry of Jesus to point people in the direction of who Jesus actually is. And so the miracles themselves, um, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 plus women and children. The feeding, you know, the production of bread in the desert, you know, points to... Jesus, well, who is it who provides manna in the desert? It is God, and it points to the identity of Jesus. Uh, you look at some of the parables, for example, the parable of the um, of, of the, uh, the 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 landowner uh, who 
wants to get the rent from the tenants and he sends his servants along and they, and they bash up the tenants. Then he sends his son along whom they kill. And so there's enough evidence in the miracles and in the parables to point us in the direction of who Jesus is. But it is only at this point, as God partly opens the eyes of Peter, that uh, you get this declaration, you are the Christ. And it's only, friends, after the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, that Peter is able to stand before a huge crowd of people and declare to them that because of the resurrection that God has made this man whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. And of course at that point people are cut to the heart and want to know what must we do. Now that's why um, it's at that point that the great secret is revealed. The great secret being that this one who has been rejected, who has been killed, is in fact the promised king, the promised Christ. You see, had the evil spirits been given free reign to just go and tell everyone anywhere and everywhere that Jesus is the Christ, uh, had the disciples... Uh, then gone out and spread the message and the, and the word and blurted it out to everyone, hey, the king has arrived, the Christ has come, then that would actually put a temptation uh, in the way of Jesus. Because given his great powers, instead of rejecting him, people may have then accepted him and uh, pushed him into that position or attempted to push him into that position of being the worldly king who would defeat the Romans and gain the earthly empire. That would have been a temptation from Satan. Uh, a temptation to avoid the incomprehensible but necessary spiritual agony of the cross and to do so for the sake of short-term worldly glory. You think Jesus wasn't tempted to do that? Well, I think that's why he rebukes Peter so sharply. See, Peter can still see that Jesus, he can see that Jesus is the Christ, but his thinking is all blurry, you know, because he's thinking about the worldly kingdom. And so in verse 32, Peter does something which is astonishing. He takes Jesus aside and what does he do to Jesus? He rebukes him. I said, no, 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 Jesus, you're wrong. That's not going to happen to you. You're not going to die. Come on, you're going, to, you're going to kick out the Romans. You're going to set up this great kingdom. It'll be greater than Solomon's kingdom. That's, that's what's going to happen. And how does get behind me, Satan, is Jesus' stinging rebuke. Because you see, Satan was using Peter to tempt Jesus. We cannot imagine how much Jesus suffered by the fact that he had knowledge of his future. For he knew 
that on the cross that he would be deserted, um, that he would be cut off from God the Father, with whom he had enjoyed fellowship for all of eternity. He knew that on the cross that he who had no sin would become sin, that he would bear the punishment for the sins of the world. I think Jesus wasn't tempted to avoid that path. We know something of his spiritual agony by what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane where in, 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 in agony uh, he sweated drops of blood for he knew what the cross would involve. And here's Peter saying, no, 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 no. That's, that's not going to happen to you, Jesus. Come on. You know, get with it. Get with the plan. We, we're going to go and start up this nuke. You don't have to die. Get behind me, Satan. And so what does it mean to follow Jesus? Is it adopting some of his philosophies of life? Is it uh, trying to be a good person? Is it you know, obeying the Sermon on the Mount or thinking that you obey the Sermon on the Mount? Is, it going to, is that what coming to church? Is that what it means to follow Jesus? Well, you know, so far in this, this has been a private conversation. But in verse 34, Jesus now invites the crowd to come and join and to listen in. And he says in verse 34 that uh, if anyone would come after me, what must he do? He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, this is extraordinary teaching and it is not very attractive because he's not talking about here, you know, wearing a cross around your neck. No, what he's talking about here is if you're going to follow me, then you've got to do what I'm doing. And what am I about to do? I'm about to go to the cross. What he's saying here is that if you want to follow me, then you must be prepared to give up yourself. You must actually be prepared to die. Then he elaborates. Verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will actually lose it. Because if you treasure your life for yourself, then you will actually bear the guilt of your own sin. But if you give your life over to God and, and to his, his good news about this kingdom, then you'll save your life as Jesus bears your sin upon himself. It's a paradox. If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll actually save it. And we have constantly been told that life will be more meaningful to us if we work harder, if we uh, grow richer, if we uh, own more property, that if we build our own little kingdom and become well established here, then life will be more meaningful, more purposeful. And that's what a lot of Christians do. We can end up living lives that when people look at us, they think, well, there's not much different between that person's life and the non-Christians around them, except maybe we're a bit more moral, sometimes. And that's what Peter was tempting Jesus to do. As Satan had once tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Remember when he uh, took Jesus up to a top of a high hill and he said, look down 
everything you see around you, said, I will give you, Jesus, the kingdoms of this world. They'll all be yours if you'll only just follow me. Very real temptation. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, Paul says that there were Christians uh, that he knew who were eager for money and that they had wandered away from their relationship with God. Now in verse 36, Jesus says, what good is that? I mean, what does, it, what, do you, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but yet loses his relationship with the Lord, loses his soul? Uh, there's a man who I once respected as being a rock-solid uh, Christian uh, who has, over the years, has become so engrossed in his career and the lifestyle that uh, that affords him uh, that uh, he's now taken the easy road and he's now wandered from the faith. But friends, it doesn't matter how rich he is. I, I don't care how big his house is. Uh, I'm not impressed with how many times he gets to travel around the world and the great places he gets to visit because he's put down his cross. He's not carrying the cross anymore. And he's traded his soul. And in verse 37, you can't trade it back. You can't buy back your soul. doesn't matter how rich you are, you can't buy it back. So then in verse 38, Jesus says something which um, is going to, not so long after this, become very relevant to Peter, uh, particularly after the rooster crowed. Have a look at verse 38. In verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, Peter, of course, was very sorry that he denied Jesus three times and uh, Jesus forgave him three times as well, just to make the point. But this is a choice which we sometimes have to make, isn't it? Uh, for example, when difficult topics come up in conversations, uh, topics which Jesus spoke about, like, for example, sin and judgment, um, sexual purity, greed, topics such as the, t the permanency of marriage, um, or maybe the deity of Christ. And, and when it's appropriate for us to say something into that conversation, we have to make a choice, don't we? Will we truly follow Jesus? Uh, will we stand with Jesus and his words and speak the truth, knowing that that may mean that we suffer some rejection, ridicule from people? Or will we put down our cross and say, no, I'm not travelling along that path this time uh, in order to gain the acceptance of people. That's a choice that you and I have to make from time to time. There are, of course, people who claim to follow Jesus and sometimes who have public profile who are constantly ashamed of what Jesus, of things Jesus said and write to the papers and go on the media and... Uh, and, uh, and, and want to uh, diminish the teaching of the Bible. Uh, you see it a lot in the issue of um, gay marriage and, and so on and so forth. All 
says Jesus to that man, and I quote, The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. There's a choice. If you're ashamed of me and my words in this generation, well, guess what? There is a day of judgment coming in the future when the Son of Man returns in the Father's glory with his holy angels. And on that day, he's going to be ashamed of you. So there's your choice. The day of judgment. Now, this has been a tough conversation for the disciples and for the crowd because it's very different to the earthly kingdom that they had been expecting. And it's hard to understand. We've got the advantage that they didn't have, but for them, it's hard to understand. Jesus would soon die. And sometime in the future, he would come again uh, in his father's glory with the angels. How could the disciples wrap their mind around all of that? I mean, that's hard stuff. Well, in chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus makes a startling promise. He says that some of those to whom he is speaking, some of those who are present are not going to have to wait until they die before they see the power of the spiritual kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? You know, they're going to live as, you know, right through to the second coming? Well, surely that, that, obviously that hasn't happened. What does it mean? Well, I think the key to understanding that is what happens very next, and it's what Rod will be speaking to our nine o'clock Uh, service next Sunday about and it's when six days later Peter, James and John witnessed Jesus transfigured where his clothes became dazzling white we're told uh, whiter than anyone could bleach them it's a description of Jesus which uh, is very much like the the descriptions of the son of man in the book of Revelation, dazzling white, stunningly bleached. And alongside him appeared Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, which find their fulfilment in Jesus the Christ, the King, the one who would die and rise again and in return one day. And so the challenge for us is, what, what really does it mean for us to follow Jesus? Uh, even in, our, in Christian circles these days, we're told that if you follow Jesus, then, then, then life's going to really pick up for you. And uh, someone said to me the other day, I started following Jesus and I thought, that's great. And then I told people it worked for me, it can work for you. Life can be really terrific, can be tops when you become a Christian. And we get the whole prosperity doctrine and you know, health and wealth and everything like that. And yet Jesus, this is the, Jesus says that anyone who would come after me must actually make sacrifices, must be prepared uh, to no longer live for themselves, but to abandon themselves, to give themselves wholly over to God so that God can do with us what God pleases to do with us. 
and that affects the whole of life. For some, of course, the obvious examples are we often talk about people who then go and become missionaries in third world countries and so on, but it's very often the case that it's a, it's a question of what is our first love now? What are our priorities? How is our love for Christ then reflected in the willingness to give up anything that God should ask of us? Are we substantially different from the world around us? Can people see that in our lives? By the way we live, the way we suppress and, and kill off the old self, and the way that we actually invest our lives in, in other people, uh, even our money into gospel ministry. What about you? What does it mean for you to follow Christ? Let's pray. Father, we do um, uh, pray for ourselves that uh, we would be people who have that uh, heavenly vision uh, that uh, in understanding how Christ is led by going to the cross, that we would be people who would follow by that route, that we would be people who take up our cross and follow him. Father, we pray that you would uh, work in our minds and our hearts to help us to uh, be aware of those areas of our lives that we have not abandoned over to you, that we would repent of that. Father, we would pray that we would be substantially different from our world around us, that people would be able to see in us a life of love, a life of sacrifice, a life of being given over to loving and serving you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.